And good evening. Welcome to another wonderful night of Tanya. This is our 23rd class, 23rd class of Tanya. It's L'chaim L'chaim. So we are in middle of chapter nine. And uh, before I forget to mention, I want to wish all of you a wonderful new month. Today was Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month of Shvat. And uh, new month means new rebirth new opportunities. Uh, so I want to wish all of you, as we wish in, uh, in Yiddish, a good Chodesh, or in Hebrew, Chodesh Tov, that it should be a blessed month for all of us. Okay. Chapters 1 through 8, we've done the heavy lifting. Concept heavy, we're learning about all of the, uh, we're, 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 we're gaining a new lexicon, we're learning terminology, brand new terminology. Chapter nine, we said, okay, we are done laying out all these topics, all these ingredients. Now we're ready to dig in and start seeing, start bringing the characters to life. So we have a godly soul, an animal soul, two souls within us. And last week we learned about how these two souls live in our bodies. Uh, they each have their own headquarters. So the animal soul has its headquarters, its center. It's a garrison, if you will in the left side of the heart. The divine soul, godly soul, its headquarters is in the brain, in the head. It also has a secondary headquarters on the right side of the heart. And we spoke a little bit about it, how the animal soul is primarily emotional. The godly soul is both, but it begins through intellect. What makes the divine soul tick and function and work is its intellect. Now you could think, you could think that these two souls, you know, big deal. They, they they should be able to get along. You live in two separate areas. Everybody has their own space. And even if you don't like each other, you know, neighbors don't have to like each other, right? When you drive, when you pack out of your driveway, you can just wave hi, you know, just keep it, keep it nice and cordial. So you could think that these two souls are just minding their own business. They each have their own agendas. They have no overlap of interests. So why not get along? Comes along the Tanya. And the Tanya says that you should know these two souls don't get along at all. There is endless friction and even fighting. There's a battle going on inside of you at every moment of life. This is an ongoing tension, an ongoing battle that happens inside of us. And uh, dear friends, this is one of the most fundamental cornerstones of Tanya, this concept, the war, the battle between the two souls. And here in chapter nine, the author is going to describe to us a little bit about this battle. So let's start reading the battle of the two souls. Let's start seeing where it takes us. All right. Okay, here we go. These two souls, however, are inherently in constant conflict. It is as the verse states, in which Rebecca was told about the twins in her womb, and one nation shall overpower the other nation. Okay, let me let me explain this to you a little bit. It's a story in the book of Genesis about our second matriarch, our second mother. So the first peer of the Jewish parents is Abraham and Sarah, right? Avraham Avinu and Sarah. And the second generation is Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca gets pregnant. 
And the Torah tells us a story that she got very anxious during her pregnancy. Why was she anxious? Why did she have this anxiety? This is what happened. She knows that she's pregnant. She, one day she's walking by a house of study, a holy place. And she all of a sudden feels the fetus stirring and moving and getting excited. So she assumes that my child must have a natural gravitation, a natural affinity for holiness, which sounds beautiful. But then she walked by a house of idol worship and she felt the exact same thing. All of a sudden she feels this excitement, this, this, this kicking from the fetus in her stomach. And she gets very, very worried. She gets worried, not because she may have a child who's attracted to idol worship. You know, every child is, uh, you know, is going to have their own struggles in life. So if this is their struggle, okay. What bothered her was the fact that she sensed that her child is confused. You're getting excited about holiness and about idol worship. Like, choose who you are. Choose your identity. <laughs> So she started getting anxious. What's up with my child? So she went to seek the counsel of one of the prophets who lived in her times. And she says, I am pregnant and I'm worried that my child is utterly confused. Doesn't know what it wants. Gets excited about everything. Doesn't know its identity. And the prophet prophesies to her and tells her, don't worry. You are not pregnant with one child. You are pregnant with two children. You don't have one confused child. You have two children. Each knows exactly what it wants from itself. And of course, we know that these two children, and that answer put her at ease. She was at ease. And she gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau. Jacob represented a holy child who felt this natural pull to holiness. And Esau was, of course, a child who was the opposite, who was pulled toward a, a more decadent lifestyle a more debased lifestyle, an unholy lifestyle. That was Esau. But this is the verse that the prophet told her. The prophet says, there are two nations in your womb. And the prophet says, and one nation shall overpower the other nation. These are not just two nations. These are two nations who are going to be per per perpetually fighting. And indeed, we see Jacob and Esau, their entire life they were... Uh, enemies. They were, they were nemesis. But it wasn't just them on a personal level. They represented something larger. They represented a historical fight. And our sages speak about this. You know, the Jewish people and Rome, the Jews are represented by Jacob. Esau, the Rome is represented by Esau. They're in perpetual struggle. Um, it's actually from here, by the way. We spoke a lot about this in uh, when we did the anti-Semitism course. We spoke about um, a very, a very uncomfortable line that Rashi tells us on this verse, not in this verse, but within this narrative, um, quoting the Midrash, the teachings of our sages. And Rashi says that it's a law of nature that Esau hates Jacob. Esau always hates Jacob. There's always going to be anti-Semites in the world. Anti-Semitism is always going to exist until Mashiach comes. So we, we see here this concept that Jacob and Esau represent this perpetual battle. 
but the Alter Rebbe looks at this, uh, this struggle between these two forces on a more spiritual and a more personal level. The godly soul and the animal soul. The godly soul and the animal soul represented by Jacob and Esau are fighting nonstop. These are not two different and cordial neighbors. These are two forces that are constantly in conflict. Let's continue reading. Right? The verses, and one nation shall overpower the other nation. They were to become two nations locked in a struggle in which the victory of one would always mean a loss for the other. The same with the struggle of the animal soul and the divine soul. So it's already even hinted to in the Torah. Animal soul and the godly soul, the divine soul, are always going to be fighting. What are they fighting for? What are they fighting about? So the author says this is because they are both fighting over one body described by King Solomon as a small city. There's a very interesting verse, a cryptic verse in Ecclesiastes, which is written by King Solomon. King Solomon describes there's a small city. It's not a large city. Right? It's, not like, it's not like New York City. What's a small city? How small does it have to be? <laughs> you know, when I was, uh, when I was in uh, Idaho for a summer, did I, I, I definitely told some of you guys about my, uh, my summer in Idaho. When I uh, went there to uh, what we call the Roving Rabbi Program. Chabad has a program that's going, been going on for decades since the 1940s, of yeshiva boys traveling to remote Jewish communities in the summer. So in any case, we drove through Idaho. We spent a month in Idaho, me and a buddy, visiting the Jews of Idaho. And, uh, you know, the, the highways in Idaho are very old style, which is that it's a highway, and then all of a sudden you have to slow down, and the highway goes straight into a city, which was how the highways worked in America until, uh, I guess, uh, you know, Pretty recent times, the 50s, the 60s. So when you're driving on the highway, all of a sudden you go from 80 miles per hour, I think like 85. On the highways, there you go, 85, which means you're driving 94, right? <laughs> We're from New York. You don't drive 85. You drive 94. You go nine over. <laughs> so we're, we're speeding, crisscrossing this, this state out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but then all of a sudden, the, the, the speed limit goes down, and you drive right through the city, and then you go back, and then the highway continues. You don't have to merge on and off, right? So you drive through these cities, and sometimes you have these cities, you know, 35, it tells you the occupation, 35 people, 12 people. Anyways, very interesting. <laughs> you drive by these little, uh, little tiny little villages. Okay, so how small is a city? I don't know. But King Solomon describes a small city where there are two kings. There's the old foolish king, and there's the young wise king. Old foolish, young wise. And they're battling over the city. That's that's the that's the that's the uh, metaphor that King Solomon uses. What was King Solomon referring to? King Solomon, the small city, is our body. We have a body, and we have inhabitants. We have different limbs. We have different organs. There's a lot within the human experience, and two kings are fighting over the body. Let's keep on reading. Let's start again from the beginning of the paragraph. This is because they're both fighting over one body. 
described by King Solomon as a small city. It is just as two kings fighting over one city, each one desiring to conquer and rule over it, to direct the city's inhabitants according to his will, so that they will obey whatever he decrees upon them. You know, in, in monarchy, kings, there's no room for two kings. There can only be one king. There's one king who makes commands and everybody are his loyal subjects. There's no place for two kings. So just like you would have two kings fighting over one city, each one wants full control. So too, let's keep on reading. So it is with these two souls, the divine soul and the vitalizing animal soul that is of Klippa. They are at war with one another for control over the body, all its limbs. There it is. These two souls are kings. And what they want is sovereignty. They want dominance. They want control. You know, we have to realize the nature of souls. Souls are not just like a little influence. Souls are a full identity, our full life. So every soul is built for a full body. Every soul has the power to think in the brain, to smell with the nose, to speak in the mouth, to feel in the heart, to, 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 to accomplish, to biologically function, to do. And automatically, if there are two souls in one body, you're asking for trouble. Because each soul has a life to live. And there's only one body where it can live its life. And that's simply what's happening over here. There are two souls that both want to live its life. But the only problem is there's only one body. There's only one driver's seat. And therefore, they fight with each other. They're each trying to attack one another to gain the upper hand, to gain leverage, to gain control over the body. That is exactly what's happening within us. And the rest of the chapter, we're going to understand a little bit how it works. You know, what we have to realize is, let me, let me I'll, I'll put it this way. And we spoke about this concept a little bit earlier on as well. Bodies are essentially dead. A body doesn't have life to itself. Life is from the soul. And not just life itself, but every biological function that we have, the fact that we can live, that we can function, that comes from the soul. So it's not your body that's smelling. It's not your body that's thinking. It's not your brain that's thinking. It's your soul that's smelling. It's your soul that's thinking. It's using the hardware of your body. It's using your nose, it's using your mouth, it's using your brain. But it's really a soul. So the soul is not just like a cute little force within you. It is you. Life is a soul. And the nature of a soul is that it's fully expressive. It lives within your entire body. You know, there's, there's not a single atom in your body where the soul isn't present. Even your nail, even a hair. There's a life within your hair in every single strand of your hair. Life pervades a body. The soul pervades the body. 
It's not just in a body. It, it spreads throughout the entire body. That's the nature of a soul. A soul becomes very, very loyal and, um, and very present in a body. There's, I, I like that word. A soul is loyal to the body. Now, good question, Fred. I'll get to that in a moment. Very good question. <coughs> By the way, just this is the reason why. Even when the soul separates from the body, the soul doesn't leave the body fully. The soul always hovers and stays close to the body, which is why when we want to access a soul, where do we go? Jewish tradition tells us to go to the resting place, to the grave of that person. Yeah, the dead body is there, but the, but the soul always remains committed and loyal to the body. Souls are very deeply committed to the body. And for that reason, a soul is not a passive inhabitant of a body. It wants to be fully expressive and fully present. Now, Fred asked a question over here um, of how does the concept of two souls fit with the concept that the husband and wife each have half of one soul that comes together in marriage. Um, it's, it's, it's really part of a larger conversation, Fred. But um, what I would say is you have a complete soul. But your complete soul also needs another complete soul. <laughs> Which means the, the, the concept that a husband and wife are soul partners and he each have half a soul that complete each other at marriage, uh, doesn't mean that you don't have a complete soul. You do have a complete soul. And when we say that a husband and wife are soul partners, we mean the godly soul. There's a relationship between the souls. But it's, a, it's, it's part of a much larger and involved uh, discussion of how souls work and how souls are interacted, uh, how souls are, are, are interconnected. It's, it's, it's a very involved subject. But, uh, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away from this idea. You have a complete soul, and the soul wants to live its life in your body. So what's happening? A godly soul comes into your body and says, this is wonderful. I have a life to live. I have a, I have, I have a full life to live 24-7. And then all of a sudden, there's another soul that thinks the exact same thing. I've also got a life to live, and I'm here in this body. And I've, I'm, I'm, I have a full agenda 24-7 of what we want to do. And each soul automatically doesn't leave space for any other soul. And therefore, they're fighting for control. And what we're going to learn in Tanya is that our lives are not simple lives. Our lives are very, I would say, complicated lives. Because there's not one force within us. There are two forces. And they're fighting for expression within our body. And there could literally be changes happening in the split second between one soul and another. All of a sudden, we'll feel that our godly soul is in the driver's seat. And our mind and our heart and our limbs are being energized and are being directed by the godly soul. A moment later, will be the animal soul in control. And all of a sudden, our mind, boom, our animal soul pushed its way into our mind. Think about it like two armies, right? Each one makes advances, then has to draw back. And oh, it's just, it's just constant. And if you, know, you know, if you look at history, <laughs> for the past like three, four hundred years, of like uh, of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, the borders changed every single day. Which country you live depends. You can wake up in the morning, you live in a different country. Ah, oh, today the borders changed because those countries in Poland and Russia 
uh, we're always we're always fighting with each other. So every single day, your border could be you know could, could change. Which uh, <laughs> which empire you live under? Who's your king? Could change every single day. So something very similar is happening in our body. This is the way it works. And this is going to be a foundational concept in Tanya to always realize that life is complex on the inside. And um, it also helps clarify the confusion that we experience that really Rebecca speaks about. Rebecca says, I'm confused. I have a child inside of me. I don't even know what he or she is. He or she is utterly confused. And the same thing is true about us. We are pregnant. <laughs> we have two souls inside of us. But knowing the fact that we are not pregnant with one soul, we are pregnant with two souls, is a very empowering thought. I'll give you an example. Sometimes people don't want to grow because they say, you know what? That's not who I am. Yeah, I know who I am. I'm not that special. I'm not, you know, the, if you'd only know my demons in the closet, right? If you'd only know my skeletons in my closet. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who could connect to God and grow and this. You know, sometimes people get very disillusioned with getting inspired. Because they say, you know, sometimes I get inspired. But then a second later, all of a sudden, my thoughts and my emotions and I have impulses that are totally, you know, to I'm totally back to my monster that I was two weeks ago. So I thought I'm making progress. I thought I'm becoming a better person. But look, look what type of utter failure I'm in. I am. I'm probably just, uh, just, uh, I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm in self-delusion. I think I'm growing. I think I'm becoming a better person. I think I'm becoming a better Jew. No, nah, doesn't work that way. We feel these fluctuations. We're very moody people. The author of it says, don't let that get you down. Don't get dejected. There's not one soul in you. There are two souls in you, and they're fighting with each other. Sometimes you'll feel a surge of expression of one soul, and you'll feel inspired, and you'll feel holy, and you'll feel motivated, and you'll want to do a mitzvah, and you'll feel committed. And another moment, you'll feel this urge, the surge of energy from the animal soul. And it can happen instantaneously back and forth. So we have to always remember, we have two forces within us. Okay. But let's now go and get to understand a little bit more what each soul wants. You know, what do you really want? You know, in a battle, not always, you hope <laughs> that each side who's fighting has an objective. What do you want? Sometimes people go to war just because they want to go back to the, to the negotiating table. Right? Everybody has a strategic goal, a strategic objective in a battle. You hope so. Right? Usually wars are fought with a purpose, besides World War I, right, Max? World War I kind of was like a big mistake. No one knows exactly why we're all fighting. Okay, a few million lives later, and they're okay. <laughs> For the balance of power that they never had to upset. Right. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, so like the whole, the, so nobody really knows what their objectives are, but we're all fighting. Okay. But you would imagine if the godly soul and the animals, if the godly soul and the animal soul are fighting, you would hope that, you know, what, what, so what's your goal? What do you want out of this? So we're beginning, we're going to begin with the godly soul, with the divine soul. And the author is going to dedicate quite a lot of space to what the divine soul wants. You know, imagine if you could sit down with your godly soul one night and say, you know, open up to me, be vulnerable. What are your dreams? 
What are your aspirations? What would your idealistic life look like? Now, what does the divine soul dream about when it goes to sleep? <laughs> What's its fairy tale? What's, what's, that, what's that love story, that, that exciting life that you wish you could live if you only had the opportunity to? So if you would sit down with your divine soul and say, you know, tell me, open up to me. What's, uh, tell me what you really want. Tell me the life that you want to live. This is what the divine soul would tell you. You ready? Let's read a little bit. What does the divine soul want? And um, it moves rather quickly over here. All right. The divine soul has quite a list, a wish list of uh, what, it what it wants its life to look like. So what the divine soul wants. Here we, here we go. Let's read. What the divine souls, the divine souls inner desire and will is that she alone have exclusive rule over you and your conduct. That all your limbs should obey and submit entirely to her as a vehicle does to its rider. Right, vehicles besides Teslas are, 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 are submit to the rider. Right, a wagon doesn't go anywhere. It just rolls wherever the horse pulls it. So the divine soul wants your body to be that to her. Just let me lead you resistance free. Just flow wherever I push you to go. Let's continue. That the limbs should express her 10 intellectual and emotional soul powers and her three garments that we learned about earlier. That those faculties should invest themselves entirely within the limbs of the body and that the body be filled with them alone to the point that no foreign agent, meaning the animal soul, should even pass through to interfere, God forbid. Here we go. The divine soul wants absolute expression and absolute control, absolute sovereignty, absolute dominance and control over what happens here in the body. Do you have a mind? It wants its intellectual soul powers to be fully expressive in the mind. You have a heart? I want all of my emotions to be fully expressive in the heart. You have hands, you have feet? I want to do stuff. You have a mouth to speak? I want to speak stuff. Fully invested, fully involved. It has. It wants to be. It wants to fully pervade the body. That's in brief what it wants. Okay, let's go now a little bit more specifically. Specifically, we're on page eighty-nine, by the way, right? Specifically, the three faculties of your brain should be filled with the chachma, bina, and das of the divine soul. Right? There are three soul powers, and at once, all three soul powers to be invested in the brain, that they be engaged in the wisdom and understanding of God, contemplating his unfathomable, endless greatness. Right? It wants the brain to think about godly soul stuff. Think about God, develop a divine consciousness. All right, okay. This recognition will lead to an awe of God in your mind, followed by palpable emotions in your heart trepidation and love for God like a consuming fire in your heart like flaming coals. So the way the divine soul works is that it has to first contemplate. It has to first understand. It has to first learn. 
then it connects with what it understands. It connects with what it learns. And then it can start developing emotions. And that's what the divine soul wants to do in your body. It wants to use your brain to think, to develop a divine consciousness. Then it wants to use your heart to develop emotions. This emotional reaction should be so intense to the point that you are yearning, even languishing, from a craving desire to bond with the infinite with all your heart and soul and beyond, from the deepest place in the right ventricle of the heart, which is the emotional center of the divine soul, so intense that the right ventricle is inlaid with love, filled and overflowing. That's what it wants. It doesn't want to get a little bit emotional. The divine soul wants to get very emotional. <laughs> you got a heart. I want the whole heart. You're capable of emotions. I want all of your emotions. That's what the divine soul wants. Okay. But now the divine soul also has an agenda for what it wants to do with the animal soul. If you win, you get to choose what you do with your enemy. The divine soul, number one, wants to shut down the enemy's operation. I don't want my animal soul to be functioning anymore. Right? What do we call it? Eliminate the threat. <laughs> if there's an opposing force, I want that force crushed. But then the divine soul has an even deeper plan. It wants to convert the animal soul into an ally. You hear this? <laughs> the, the animal soul wants to go hijack the left side of the heart, which is where the animal soul is, and convert the animal soul into an ally to be another divine soul. It wants to have another divine soul to work with. It could get along with another divine soul because <laughs> then they both have the same agenda. They could both work together. So let's, let's, let's read a little bit about what the animal soul, what the godly soul wants to do with the animal soul. All right? Bottom of page 89. Until this love spreads and spills over to the left ventricle of the heart as well, the center of the animal soul. It wants to get so emotional that the emotions start overpowering and start spilling over into the left side of the heart, into the animal soul. There, it will suppress the negative element of water within the sitra ahura there. Right. Sitra Akra means the unholy energy. It wants to suppress the water of the Sitra Akra, which is the craving that comes from Klipat Noga. You know, the animal soul, what does it love? It loves God. It loves holiness. So the animal soul wants to go and suppress and hijack the love and the desire of the animal soul. And let me just jog your memory. This was chapter one of Tanya, long time ago. Desire and lust and attraction comes from the element of water. We learned in chapter one that every soul has four elements, water, fire, ear, and earth. And the element of water is the root, is the source of the soul's desires for pleasure. So the water of the godly soul, which is holy, 
is the desire and the love and the attraction for holiness for another Jew, for Torah, for mitzvahs. The water of the animal soul is not holy. It's the desire and the temptation and the lust for what? For ice cream. Right? I don't mean I don't mean ice cream specifically. You know that's that's the boilerplate. You right? <laughs> fill the blank spot. We all know what our animal soul wants, right? <laughs> so it wants to go and suppress the unholy water of the animal soul. Okay, let's continue. It will transform and invert that craving for worldly pleasures into a love for God. Like it says, you should love God with all your heart, which the sages interpret as with both of your impulses. So the animal soul, so the godly soul, the divine soul, doesn't just want to crush the enemy. It sees tremendous value in bringing the enemy's force to start being an ally. And this is a teaching, and I want to elaborate a little bit on this concept, that the animal soul does have potential to become an ally. Let's talk a little bit about this, at least for a few minutes. So we just quoted a verse here. You should love God with all your heart. That's from the beginning of the Shema prayer, right? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay. Now, the Hebrew is with all your heart. But our sages in the Talmud say, one second, grammatically something is a little bit off here. It says with, the, with two bets. But it really should have said with all your heart, with only one bet. The double lettering, there's one extra letter there. The Torah is sending you a little message. And our sages say that God wants you to love him not with one heart, but with two hearts, with both sides of the heart, with both impulses, with both souls. Don't just love God with your godly soul, love God with your animal soul. So if you think about it, how do you do that? How do you get an animal soul that, what is it like? It likes good food. It likes itself. It likes its ego. It likes materialism. You want them to love God? You're talking Chinese. You know what I'm saying? How do you get an animal soul to love God? So I want to talk to you for a moment a little bit about it. You know, the animal soul, when we speak about the, the animal soul, has tremendous instinctive desire it, it, it's naturally impulsive and the animal soul simply wants stuff that it understands to be good and desirable but what it wants and what it thinks is desirable is something which it has to learn and as long as the animal soul understands that this is desirable it immediately impulsively instinctively starts wanting it so for example you are not born liking ice cream. Do you know when you started liking ice cream? The moment that you've tasted it for the first time. And your animal soul, those, those lights started flashing. We like this. We now impulsively love ice cream. I'm telling you, one year, you could be not even by your first birthday. And your animal soul works beautifully, fine, and well. <laughs> all it needs is like a, that little education that ice cream is good. Boom. It's all in for it. 
Now, here's, here's the thing. The animal soul of babies will eat garbage off a floor. I guess garbage could taste good, which makes sense. You know, whatever. We look at it and say, that's disgusting. What are you doing? You're eating ice cream? <laughs> you're eat, sorry, you're eating garbage? What are you eating garbage off the floor for? Uh, same thing with junk. Kids could eat junk, like for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And us, we're like, I would throw up if I'd eat that amount of junk. You know, <laughs> That's disgusting. So what happens is simply that the animal soul learns through life and matures its, its understanding of what's desirable, and it just simply evolves. So it always is the exact same thing, a very brute force of desire, of temptation. Not of temptation, but of, of attraction. I want stuff that I think are good. So what does that look like? When a child is young, five-year-old, six-year-old boy, they like Lego cars, right? My boy likes Lego. <laughs> You buy him a Lego set, an hour later, you know what he wants? Another Lego set. Okay. <laughs> it's a very big problem. We just put a two-month two month cap on, on Lego sets. No more Lego car. But he likes Lego cars. If you buy me a Lego car, my animal soul used to like it, Lego sets. Not anymore. Now my animal soul likes, likes a real car. You get me a nice real car, right? When I drive in, you know... <laughs> When I go and rent the car, you get like that, that pleasure of like brand new car, fully loaded. You know, there's like a certain, the animal soul gets very excited about that. At least my animal soul. You know, little kids, what do they like? They like, um, I don't know, you know, monopoly money. You get a little bit older, you start liking real money. It's the same animal soul. It's just that at one point you thought this was value. You get a little bit older, you like something else. But the animal soul could be trained. I'll give you an example. Another good example of this. An example, you know, meaning it's not just nature. There's also a lot of nurture to what the animal soul uh, is attracted to. So here's an example. We have the Super Bowl coming up, right? You know, in America, we get very excited. You know, we take the Super Bowl very seriously. Let me ask you a question. How did we ever manage to convince people to care about what direction a ball goes? in a different state. It's an unbelievable thing that we somehow managed to convince an entire society that this is something worth caring about. <laughs> you know, people will legitimately mourn or legitimately rejoice. Like, like rejoice if this is one of the most exciting moments of life and mourn as if this is a, a real loss, personal loss. Because of a super, it's unbelievable. You know, why, did, why, why should a taxi driver, why should a dentist care what direction a ball is going in a different state? It just makes no sense. This has absolutely no meaning, no, no consequence, no relevancy to anything in your life. And we got animal souls to just buy into this hook, line, and sinker. It's unbelievable. It just shows how easy it is to convince our animal soul, this is important, let's care about this. And another example is fashion. You know, nothing is objectively good looking. Nothing is objectively bad looking. You know, in the fashion industry, one of the ways they get us to, to, buy, to spend a lot of money is that every 12 months, they change the styles. So well, it looked good last year, and that doesn't look good anymore. <laughs> in 2022, that looked good. In 2023, that doesn't look good anymore. Now something else looks good. And last year, this didn't look good, but now in 2023, it does look good. Unbelievable thing. So we'll look back at what people, uh, you know, what, what society, what was in fashion 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we'll be like, wow, that's disgusting. Whoever thought that was nice. 
<laughs> and we look at today's fashion, we're like, our animal soul feels very, that's beautiful. That's beauty. I want to own that. So it, it, it's, it's, all, it's all a mind game, right? The, the fashion, but that's the way the animal soul works. The animal soul simply needs to be conditioned. And it's not that difficult to do because the animal soul is very, very impulsive. Very. So the moment that we could just get the animal soul to buy into something new, something new, or the moment we can mature our animal soul, it will start loving something else. It will start being attracted to something else. The same way I walk into a store, I feel no gravitation to the Lego aisle, like zero. <laughs> but once upon a time, you couldn't get me away from that aisle. And I would throw a tantrum because I wanted something from that aisle. So the animal soul really could mature. It's a very important thing to understand, to realize. So there is a way, at least on some level, to take the animal soul and say, listen, you used to care about Lego. You used to care about Monopoly money. Now you care about real money and now you care about actual real cars. But let's, 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 let's advance. Let's mature. And I'll explain to you why a mitzvah is something worth getting excited about. And I'll convince you why God's something worth to get excited about. And I'll convince you why studying Tanya is something worth getting excited about. And when we convince our animal soul that, we could start tapping into the very animalistic brute force that the animal soul provides to be an ally to our godly soul, which is such a beautiful thing. So it's possible to do. It's not that far-fetched. If we could get millions of people <laughs> to buy, I don't know, hundreds of millions of people to buy into the excitement of Super Bowl, we could get ourselves to be excited about God. All it takes is a little bit of conditioning, a little bit of education. And that's what the animal soul wants to do. That's part of its agenda. Okay, let's continue. We're on top of page 90. All right, this is a little bit cryptic, a little bit uh, cabalistic, what we're about to read over here. But it's okay. The, the nature of Tanya is, the more we learn, the more we understand everything. And then what we've learned in previous chapters, all of a sudden, oh, now I understand that even better. Okay, let's continue. Top of page 90. At that point, which means at the point that you could start invading the enemy territory, right? The animal soul and converting the animal soul into an ally, at that point, you will rise to the level to the level of great love and affection that is a level beyond the fierce love that is like coals of fire. Which means the love that you can gain when you have both souls loving God is much greater and more intense than the regular love of the, of the godly soul, which is called the love of fire. You will attain the great love that is called in scriptures, love and delights, a delightful love, which is the experience of taking pleasure in God. This delightful love is a taste of the world to come. This delight is experienced in your mental faculties of wisdom and intelligence. It is the sheer pleasure that comes from understanding God and knowing him as much as your mind and wisdom can grasp. So if you could get both souls on board to love God, you upgrade your type of love. Okay, now don't worry. What, what does that mean, love of fire, love of delights? We'll be learning about this more in depth later on in Tanya, where we start talking a little bit more deeper about the various different types of emotions. There'll be meditations for different types of emotions. We'll get there. Okay, but let's continue. 
This is what is called the water and the seed of light that has been seeded within the holiness of the divine soul. So in Kabbalah language, there's something called water and the seed of light that your divine soul possesses. It has the power to transform to good the water aspect of the animal soul from which all the cravings for worldly pleasures originally came. So your divine soul has the potential to reach into the animal soul and convert it, transform it, change it from loving ice cream into loving God. Which is, which is if you think about it, it, it's a very inspiring thought. Can you imagine getting excited about God the same way you get excited about, I don't know what, about, going, about, about buying a new car? <laughs> it, it's, 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 a very, it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. You know, if you feel that, you're probably, uh, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. Okay. It is as described in Eitz Chaim, section 50, chapter 3. Hey, Stuart, how you doing? Good evening. <laughs> section 50, chapter 3, citing the Zohar, that the evil inclination, the Yetzer Hara, can be transformed to become completely good. Truly, just like the good inclination, the Yetzer Tov. This is done when its filthy clothing are removed. The filthy clothing, those are the pleasures of this world in which the animal soul is so invested. So, it's like before. You have an animal soul. The animal soul has one agenda only. It's just very emotional. What, what do I want? What do I like? Now, what it wants and what it likes is already the assumed identity. It's like garments. So little babies, what do they like? They crawl on the floor and they like pieces of garbage. It's actually really disgusting. They get older and you start not liking garbage. So that's, 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 that's what it means to remove your filthy clothing. You used to be invested in this type of excitement. Now you're, you took off those clothing. Now you're invested in another, in another type of excitement. So we could do that to our animal soul. Currently our animal soul is excited about worldly pleasures. We could remove those clothing, those pleasures. And now we could use out, we could upgrade our animal soul to be excited about God. In any case, this is the agenda of the divine soul. The divine soul wants to permeate your body's intellect, permeate your body's emotions, and get so emotional that even it starts hijacking and invading and converting, transforming the animal soul's emotions as well. This is quite a big dream here, right? This is this is a pipe dream here, but this is what the this is what the divine soul wants. You all have a divine soul. Your divine soul fights every day for this agenda. All right, this is not some theoretical idea. This is what's happening within you. This is your divine soul. This is my divine soul. This is what it wants out of life. Okay, let's let's wrap up the divine soul's uh, story over here. <laughs> the same applies when the bottom of page ninety. The same applies to all the other emotions within the heart, all of which are branches of awe and love. Which means until now we're speaking mainly about love. Same thing about all emotions. The, the divine soul wants to get very emotional about in that emotion. <coughs> wants to get very emotional in that emotional space. Thank you. And then it wants to transform the animal soul's emotion as well. 
right? The divine soul wants to be only, wants them to be only for God alone. That's the way it works. Okay, now we go to behaviors. So too with your faculty of speech and your faculty to articulate thoughts. The divine soul wants them to be filled by its garments of thought and speech alone. Thoughts of God and his Torah. So that this will be what you speak about all day, never resting your mouth from Torah study. Could you think? Could you speak? The divine soul wants you to be 24-7. That it should be expressing in your behavior of thought and in your behavior of speech. And just to conclude over here, the same with your capacity to take action with your hands and all the other 248 limbs. The divine soul wants them engaged only in doing mitzvahs, using the divine soul's third garment of action. So the point is, the human experience is quite complex, quite dynamic. We have intellect, we have emotion, we, are, we, 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 we have functionality. <laughs> the divine soul has a plan for it all and has no time and space in its agenda and its schedule for any other thing to happen here. It's booked minute to minute. You could think I've got minute to minute business for you. You could speak minute to minute business for you. You could feel I've got minute to minute business for you. <laughs> that's, that's what the divine soul. So you can understand that when the animal soul shows up, The, what does the godly soul say? Godly soul says, I've got no space for you. I, I'm sorry, we're, we're fully booked. <laughs> okay, let's continue reading. But what does the animal soul want? So little surprise, the animal soul wants the exact same thing, just the opposite. <laughs> the divine soul wants full control, full presence to be divine. The animal soul wants you to, wants to express itself in the entirety of your human experience. So part three of the chapter, what your animal soul wants. The animal soul of Klippa, on the other hand, wants exactly the opposite. Simple as that. The Alter Rebbe doesn't go into any detail over here. The Alter Rebbe does not give a lot of ear time to the, uh, to the animal soul. But it's uh, pretty easy to understand. These two souls, you know, today... Today, we're, we're so advanced that we've even thought of brilliant ideas like two-state solutions. <laughs> Does the animal soul and the uh, divine soul, would they settle on a two-state solution? You know, you get half the body, you'll get the other half of the body. You get half of the emotions, you'll get the other half of the emotions. Or, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is the godly soul, yeah, well, you know, and then you'll alternate. You know, each of you will go on vacation. One day you, one day the other day. It's not even in the lexicon of these of these two souls. These guys want everything. There's nothing they are willing to give in for. Neither one. And we see this playing out in our lives. Here's an example. If you take money and you give it to charity, why do you give it to charity? Because it's a mitzvah to give charity. That's really the reason. Your divine soul makes money. What it sees in money is not my next mortgage payment. Your divine soul sees in money a mitzvah. What's the mitzvah? 10% goes to charity. So when the divine soul compels us and inspires us 
and works within us to give charity, what do you think the animal soul says? The animal soul doesn't say, you know what? Let, let the godly soul take 10%. No, it says, what? You're crazy. What are, what are you doing? That's, that's good money. You know what we could do with that money? We could go on vacation with that money. We could go to giving it away. So today, we're very lucky we live in America. We get some tax breaks if we give charity. So it's a little bit easier on our animal soul to stomach that it's giving away its own hard-earned cash. <laughs> so that's one of the benefits of living in the modern age. But the animal soul, the animal soul, it freaks out. You're giving away money? Same thing, what happens? You're going to wake up a few minutes early to put on tefillin in the morning before you go to work. The animal soul says, what? We're losing sleep because of this? What an utter waste of time. We got to sleep. And you're going to leave work early to light Shabbos candles at home. And the, the, the animal soul starts freaking out. What's, what, what, what are you doing? We got to make money to survive. So these two souls don't just have an agenda that they want to do, but they just can't even begin to understand the other soul. And the godly soul sees the animal soul just, just spending so much energy and being so sunken into these, these worldly pleasures and fleeting pleasures. And he just gets so frustrated. What are we doing here? This is called life. This is a life worth living. So these two souls just so don't understand each other. They're so different. And, there's, and, and they just really have a life they want to live. And they just keep on seeing the other soul get in its way. So there's a lot of inner frustration going on over here, as you could imagine, right? You just have to play out the, the psychology. And there's literally a battle. They are each fighting every single day for dominance. Each one wants something more. And in the next few chapters, we're going to learn a little bit about, uh, about how, how that battle plays out. But I want to conclude, we have, we have a few more words here to the chapter. The Yalat Rebbe throws in a beautiful plot twist. Every good drama needs a plot twist, right? So here we got a plot twist. We got a drama here. There's a battle here. Two kings, two souls fighting. We got a plot twist. Here's the plot twist. The author of it says it and doesn't even explain. <laughs> Let's read. But, there's a big, big but, right? But the animal soul and its negative drive is ultimately for your good, existing only so that you will rise to dominate her and win as with the parable of the harlot in the Holy Zohar. End of chapter. You know, you could think, you know, what type of life is this? You know, God created life. God created man. God created us. And God created us to live in a life of conflict. You know, like, is this... <laughs> why would God set us up with such a complicated life? With so much drama. Who needs drama in their life? We couldn't just have a normal life. So the Zohar, the classical ancient work of Jewish mysticism, asked this question. Why did God create a Yetzir Hara, an evil inclination? Why did God make us an animal soul? You know, if God wants us to do mitzvahs, God should have made us with only a godly soul. Right? Problem solved. <laughs> what do we need an animal soul? What do we need this whole, what do we need this whole circus for? Who needs this? Who needs this whole schlep, an animal soul? So the Zohar gives this, the, answers this question with a parable. This is the story. There was a great king of a great empire. And he had an only son, the crown prince, who was destined 
to take over the throne and to lead this empire of a long succession of kings, of mighty kings, into its next generation. And the king understood that the crown prince has to be raised, not just as a regular kid, not just as a regular youth, but he has to be raised to have tremendous inner strength, strength of character, resolve, commitment. And the king wanted to test the inner strength, the inner commitment of his crown prince, of his teenage crown prince. So what does he do? In his kingdom, there was a woman who was a prostitute, a harlot. So the king calls her in and says, I have a mission for you. I want you to go and try to seduce my crown prince, my son. Don't tell him that I sent you. But your job is to try to get him to, uh, to give in, to become weak. That's your job. Because I want to test the strength of my son, and I want to build up his strength. I want to build up his resolve. I want him to have a struggle that he's going to have to learn what it means to hold on strong. That's what I want. So he creates this, uh, this, this, this test for his son. And the harlot goes and uh, does her work to seduce the crown prince. Okay. Now, that's the end of the, of the parable. You know, here's what the Zohar says. The Zohar goes into the psychology of this prostitute, of this woman. It's very interesting. Does she want the crown prince to fail and to give in to her seductive advances? What does she want? Does she want? Is she interested in, in him, in him uh, giving in? The answer is no. <laughs> she actually wants a strong king. You know, if he's weak, the whole, the whole kingdom is in trouble. And she's, a, she's a, a subject of this kingdom. So she actually, you know, and this is going to be her king. She doesn't want him to fail. So really, she doesn't want him to listen to her. She doesn't want this to work out. But could she then go and do a weak job? Could she not be so seductive? No. She was given orders by the king. If she doesn't use all of her seductive prowess, she's violating the command of the king. She has to listen. <laughs> so on the one hand, she is working crazy hard to try to seduce and to bring down the crown prince. On the other hand, she actually does not want him to fail. And if he does fail, she, she says, oh no, this is not what's meant to happen here. So the Zohar says, that's really what's happening within you. God gave you the animal soul. There's no duality, right? There's no opposing force behind God. If you have an animal soul, God gave that to you. The animal soul works for God. The goal of life is not to live a life like an angel where everything is easy. The goal of life is to struggle. God is not looking to bring us down. God is looking for us to face a challenge and to succeed through it. And there's a purpose there. And the more we learn Tanya, the more we're going to understand why we live, why we have to live a complicated life with an animal soul. There's a purpose. But that's what the author ever wants. The author ever wants us to be the crown prince who actually got a little note from a spy who said, by the way, this whole thing, it's really all a setup. It's really all for you to, to be strong. So the author is telling us that from the outset. 
You got an animal soul. It looks like it's trying to seduce you. It looks like it's trying to pull you down. It's not there for you to fail. It's there for you to have those triumphant moments of life. That's the plot twist. Okay, but then we have the cliffhanger. <laughs> but the point is we have this raging fight and battle going on within us. And okay, so how does this fight look like in practice? That's where we're going to learn about in chapter 10 and chapter 11. We're going to start learning about the different uh, variables of how well the battle is working out within us. And also, once we understand this concept of two souls, they're battling. There's a battleground. There's many different layers and levels of victories. Now we can start diagnosing what we should look at as success. What is considered a failure? What is realistic? I'll tell you right now. I'll give you a little bit of a uh, spoiler. What the divine soul wants, it's not getting all of it. <laughs> I know it wants to not negotiate. That's fine. It's never going to give in to a ceasefire. The, the godly soul dies on the battlefield. We're going to live, God willing, until 120 years old. The, the animal soul never gets to see victory. It dies on the battlefield. The battle starts when you're born and ends when you die. <laughs> it's stalemate and it's a game over then. But it's, so it's not going to get everything at once. Our job is to live with the battle and to manage the battle. And we have to understand what are realistic expectations for our spiritual living and what's not. That's where we're going with this. So, dear friends, we're a few minutes over time. I want to thank you all for joining. I want to wish you all a wonderful night. But until next time, see you soon.